Thank you, guys. Uh, when Melanie and I uh, first met, my wife Melanie, uh, we had a, a very few contentious moments, uh, but one came about because of a word, and uh, the word is toboggan. Have you ever heard this word before, toboggan? All right, toboggan. When you think of the word toboggan, uh, do you think of this? Or do you think of this? All right, this is a very important test of whether or not we can ever be friends again, okay? Because there is a right answer. Is it option A or option B? Yes. The answer is it's a hat. A toboggan is a hat, okay? That is the way I grew up. That is the right answer, and uh, I'm sorry if you're from another part of the country, uh, but toboggan is the correct answer. A hat, toboggan hat. There are other words that when you say them, they possibly might mean something different to someone else, or maybe they've even changed their meaning. A couple of words that came to mind, well, uh, the word awful. Do you, do you know that awful, what, do we, what does it mean now? It means bad, terrible. But the original definition of the word awful means full of awe. Ah, yes. It's, you're awful. You're full of awe. Or, or how about this word? When you think of this word uh, and this next word, backlog, uh, what do you think of? You've got a ton of work to do. You're getting ready. You have a backlog of work to do, okay? Are you with me this morning, all right? Backlog of work, but the original meaning was a giant log in the back of your fireplace, okay? Your back log that you would, you would burn, all right? How about the word bad, all right? The word bad used to mean that it was bad uh, or not good, but now bad kind of became good. I don't know if that was Michael Jackson that we have to thank for that, uh, but bad is now, man, that's bad. That's, that can be good. Or, or the word bomb, uh, when you said the word bomb before, it, it very clearly meant boom, bomb, explode. But now if someone says that you are the bomb, that's actually a compliment, okay? You are the B-O-M-B. You are the bomb, all right? That is like that. This is also an educational period for the older folks in the room. Uh, but I think that word is passed in the cool factor. But uh, if you're the bomb, that's a good thing. Or if someone refers to the bomb burrito, uh, are you familiar with the bomb burrito? I would just like to warn you now, if you ever go to a gas station and you see the bomb burrito, that is a negatory, good buddy. Do not try it. It doesn't matter how hungry you are. The results are not good, all right? On a related word, the word fizzle. Are you, what comes to mind when you think of the word fizzle? Now, like something that fizzles out, maybe. Uh, the word fizzle, the original, was actually SBD. Uh, it is a silent passing of gas, uh, fizzle. Yeah, so if someone says the word fizzle, just getting education in words right here. You can write these down, take notes if you'd like. Or the word sick, man, that's sick. That's just sick. That would mean you're vomiting or ill, or it's really cool. Man, that's really sick, okay? That's another word for you. Uh, last couple of ones, tweet, of course, has changed. Tweet was the sound of... A bird would make. Now, uh, if you're on social media, you are tweeting all the time, okay? Tweet, tweet, tweet. 
Uh, there was a word that we heard when I was in Bible quizzing. Uh, we were studying the book of John, and there's an actual Bible verse that says this. John was talking about Jesus, and he says, the thongs of whose sandals I am unworthy to untie. And every time we heard that word, <laughs> because, of course, we're not thinking of sandals, are we? There, we hear thongs today. Words change. They mean different things to different times or to different people. And I think there's another word that we need to consider this, this morning that is, is probably changed maybe in the way people think about it. What do you think comes to mind when you see this next word? Christian. Like if you ask people randomly on the, on the street, how would you define the word? How would you know what that is? Like just maybe random person that you know, a friend that you work with, what is a Christian? Now that seems like a, a simple question. We're in church, uh, right? Christian. But let's think about it. I bet if we ask some people, Christian is like a a label. It's something that you are, I'm on Facebook, then I I choose that as a a label of religion or something. Uh, Some people, when you think of Christian, they think, well, those are the people that go to church. People that go to church are are the Christians. this, This famous youth pastor said once that just because I go and I stand in McDonald's doesn't make me a Big Mac. Uh, Just because you go somewhere doesn't make you something. Okay, so just because you come to church doesn't make you a Christian, really. Then some people say, well, people who believe in God, well, that's a Christian, right? Well, wasn't it Jesus that said even the the demons believe that there's a God? That they have faith that there's a God? So so what is a Christian? What 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 does it look like? What is the, the word? As I've thought about that, I think that, you know what, I had this conversation with myself. There's a lot of people out there that say they're, they're Christians, and they're giving the real Christians a bad name. They're doing stuff that are just not, just not things that Christians should be doing, or people that are Christ-like should be doing. But then in that conversation in your head, don't you hate it when God does it? I wonder if there's anything that I do that's not Christ-like. I wonder if people would say, Man, that guy looks like Jesus. Because isn't that really what they were after in the first century when they said Christian? It would be a Christ follower, someone that followed Christ, a disciple of Jesus, someone that, is, that looks like Jesus. And I'm afraid, I'm afraid that maybe one of the problems that we have right now, just in the, in the church, universal, is, is a phrase that maybe you've heard before, a quote you've heard before. I like your Christ. I just don't like your Christians. Your Christians are so unlike your Christ. And there are a lot of people, and maybe we're guilty of this, of calling ourselves a Christian, but not really living up to the definition. So that's what we want to talk about this morning, remembering what it really means to be a Christ follower, a Christian today. Now, if you have a Bible, you can turn to Matthew 16. That's where we're at. Uh, Jesus was a great storyteller. He loved to tell stories. He loved to use illustrations and metaphors and visuals, and sometimes scholars tell us this, that he would even take the disciples on field trips just to prove a point. And I believe that's what he was doing in this passage. He took them 26 miles out of the way, 26 miles to a place called Caesarea Philippi. From where they would normally travel, he went in this little Little uh, day trip, a little field trip. Do you remember those back in, in, in elementary school? We loved those. He was a field trip to Caesarea Philippi. 
And this area was known uh, for several things. First of all, it was kind of the sin city of the day. So if we had a, a, a Las Vegas of that, that area, it would be Caesarea Philippi. This is a modern-day uh, place there. Uh, these are not the disciples here below. Uh, those are just, uh, that is not a picture from the first century. But this is what the area looks like, and there is actually a hole, uh, the cave that was there. It was a place where they believed that the gods would gather and come to and fro out of Hades. So many people believe back then that this was the entrance into Hades. Okay, and, and these gods would come back, and there were worship of gods at this place, and there were sexual deviant things that were happening at this place, and, and especially the worship of a, of a god named Pan. Uh, maybe you've seen pictures of Pan. He's the, 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 the god that's uh, half man, half goat, and he would ha- usually have a, a flute of some sort. And people would come to this place and worship Pan. He was also the god of fertility, thus connecting to the, the, the deviant things that were happening there. And so here's the setting where Jesus uh, brings the disciples. It's also, he's also the God of, quite honestly, confusion. When we think of uh, the words that, we, that come from pan, like panic or pandemonium. It's also the word where we get the word pancake uh, as well. That was a joke. You did not get it. I thought it was really funny when I was writing that down. Man, if I had my pen, I would scratch that one out. Um, but there's the cave there, and there's this, this whole scene. So think Sin City, the entrance into the area. Jesus is there with his disciples. I'm sure the disciples are going, are you sure, Jesus? This is where we're going to go? This is where you're going to be today? Because people like that, we shouldn't be going to those places. And that's when Jesus asked the question here. Jesus came to the region of Caesarea Philippi. He asked the disciples, this is verse 13 and 14, who do people say the Son of Man is? He's basically saying, who do people say that I am? In the midst of this culture that we live in, who do people say that I am? And, and somebody pipes up and they replied, well, well, some say John the Baptist, and others say Elijah, and others still say Jeremiah, one of the prophets. So maybe that's a good question we would ask. If somebody asked the question of, who's Jesus? And, and maybe we'd get some answers out there that would be, he's a good guy, good teacher, good person, said some good things, did some good things. But then he turns the question on the disciples, and he says this. Who do you say that I am? Who do you say? Who am I to you? Am I just a good man? Am I just a prophet? Am I just a person that you're spending time with? Who are you? And I think that's a question that every one of us has to answer in our lifetime. It's the most important question maybe that you're ever going to be answered. Asked, who do you say Jesus is? Is he really who he is? Someone said it this way. He's either a liar, he's either a lunatic, or he has to be Lord. Those are the options. You have to make that decision in your life. And, and, and Peter pipes up and he says this, you are the Messiah. You are the son of God. You are the son of the living God. And, 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 and hear this. Maybe this phrase takes different meaning in this setting. This is Jesus, what he says. Now I say to you, Peter, which means rock, and upon this rock, I will build my church. Now, a lot of people focus on the Peter part of this, this phrase. But the next thing he says is this. And all of the powers of hell will not conquer my church. So in this setting, this whole, in the midst of pagan worship, he's saying, there's no power on this earth that can conquer my church. I wonder if people stopped what they were doing, going in and out of the region to hear these words. I wonder if Jesus said them out loud so that people could hear really loud. 
And he says, I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. He keeps on teaching. He keeps on telling them. He says, the disciples, then Jesus said to the disciples, these phrase, whomever, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves, take up their cross, and follow me. This is what it looks like to be a disciple. This is what it looks like to be a Christian. Whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves, take up their cross, and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it. But whoever loses their life for me will find it. What good will it be for someone to gain the whole world yet forfeit their soul? Or what can anyone give in exchange for their soul? For the Son of Man is going to come in the Father's, his Father's glory with his angels, and then he will reward each person according to what they have done. read an amazing story about a guy this week. Uh, his name is William Borden. Uh, here's a picture of him. William Borden lived back in the turn of the century, uh, born in the, the late 1800s, and uh, grew up in Chicago area under a, a pastor there in Chicago by the name of D.L. Moody. You might have heard of him before. And uh, under D.L. Moody's uh, ministry, uh, at the young age of seven, uh, William was saved and really challenged by this quote of, 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 of Moody that said this, the world has yet to see what God can do with a man fully consecrated to him. By God's help, I aim to be that person. I want to be that. That's my focus. I want to be a man fully consecrated to God. So these words are churning inside of, of Borden when he gives his life to the Lord. His parents uh, send him, this is talking about some cool parents, for a high school graduate, and he graduated early from high school, around the age of 16 to 17, they say, he was given a high school trip of traveling around the world. Pretty cool, uh, if you can get that. Also, those are the kind of kids who are like, man, I can't stand those kids that get all the, the nice trips. But he got a trip like that. He goes around the, the, the world, and on that trip, God churned something inside of William Borden and called him to spread the gospel, to tell people around the world about Jesus, to become a missionary. When he got back, his friend said, said this. One friend said, you know, he's throwing himself away. He's just throwing his life away as, as a missionary. And when he heard those words, he wrote in his Bible just two words, no reserves, no reserves, no holding back. He goes, because his dad was trying to really stall him, if you, if you go to school, maybe he'll get distracted in this whole missionary thing. Maybe that'll go away. And so he, they send him to Yale. And when he got to Yale, he, he begins to study. And this was a very different student. People began to notice that. He, there was one quote that I read in the story. is He came to college far ahead spiritually of any of us. He had already given his heart in full surrender to Christ and had really done it. We who were his classmates learned to lean on him and find in him a strength that was a solid rock just because of this settled purpose and consecration in his life. And then he wrote this sentence in his journal when he, when he got there. Say no to self and yes to Jesus every time. And with this burn inside of him, this, this flame that was inside of him, he started a small group of three or four guys that would pray together, and they would read the Bible together. And this began to flame out into Yale, to the campus. And at the end of his freshman year, there were about 150 people, students, that were meeting in small groups across the campus. And that began to, to, to just explode. And Borden felt personally responsible for every person on campus. So that at the end of his senior year, at a school that at the time was around 1,300 students, 
A thousand of those 1,300 students were meeting in small groups, studying God's word, praying and seeking God, wanting to be this, this, this person that would be fully consecrated to God. His senior year, Borden's dad passed away. He passed away, which is significant because he was the owner, operator, founder of Borden Milk. Have you ever heard of Borden Milk before? Okay? Have you ever, maybe you even had their ice cream or seen it in the grocery store. So now, William Borden is the owner of a million dollar at the time, but billion dollar right now company. And he has this, all these people that have come after him with huge job offers and things that he could be able to do with all of this money. But he did not take his eye off the call that God had placed on his life. And he wrote in his Bible, no retreat, no retreat. I'm not going back on what God has for me. I've given my entire life to him. He goes on to Princeton University. He's an influence there. And then he goes as he wants to go and, and influence Muslims in China. He wants to go and learn the language. And so he stops off in Egypt. And he's there, going to be there for a couple of months. Within the first month that he's there, he contracts spinal meningitis. And a month later, he's dead. He's dead. And, and someone said, a wave of sorrow went around the world. Borden not only gave away his wealth, but himself in a way so, get this word, joyous and natural that it seemed like a privilege rather than a sacrifice. And some would say, well, well man, he just threw it all away. He just threw it all away. He threw his life away to, to, to go and follow this, this God. They found his Bible. And what he had written the day before he passed away, no regrets. No regrets in life because he'd given his whole life to, to, to God and it made a huge impact already in the, the years that he had. As I've thought about that story this week, and I think about those, this, those three phrases, no reserves, no retreats, no regrets, there is one two-word phrase that has come to my mind all week. It's a simple phrase, all in. He was all in. Now, I don't know if you've ever... Uh, played the game Texas Hold'em or not, you don't have to shake your head on that one in church, okay? But maybe you've seen it on ESPN. It became popular about 10 years ago. I'm not sure why, because if you look at the people playing Texas Hold'em, they're not exactly finely tuned athletes uh, that are playing. But it's a, it's a card game that obviously involves chips. And before you get extremely nervous about this whole subject, we have discuss, I've discussed this with our district superintendent. I can give you his, his phone number afterwards. But it's the metaphor... That, that, that comes to mind. Because what happens if you've played the game or you know the game is there is a moment where people go all in. That's where they push all of their chips in the middle of the table and say, I am going, I'm totally committed to this moment, to this hand. It's where you push everything into the middle. When I think of someone that's a disciple of Jesus Christ, they have pushed everything in. They have pushed their life they push their heart, their family, their future, their, their talents, their treasure, their, their everything that they are. They are all in. And Jesus had these all-in moments with people. He does not, he, and I hope I'm not stepping on toes, but maybe I am. He is not a God that, that wants a half-hearted effort. In fact, he says, if you're lukewarm, I'm going to spit you out. He wants people, and he's calling us to be people that are all in. That phrase 
Deny self. Take up your cross and follow me. And follow me. What, what an amazing uh, call that God puts on us. Now, as I thought about that, that self-denial, there was a, a test that came to mind. Maybe you remember this, have seen this, probably read about it. The Stanford Marshmallow Test. Have you seen that video, those videos before? They put a kid in the room and, well, here's, here's a video that maybe it, it explains what it is. Stanford Marshmallow Test. They came up with it about 50 years ago. <laughs> now, how many of you want to go try that on your kids uh, this afternoon to see if they would, they would pass the test? Before you do that, now, now here's the catch. They actually tracked these kids back in, I think it was the 60s or the late 50s. They tracked them to see how students would do that responded, how they responded to the test. And the kids that, uh, that waited to receive the second marshmallow, they ended up having higher SAT scores lower levels of substance abuse, lower likelihood of obesity, better responses to stress, better social skills as reported by their parents, and generally better scores in other life areas. So maybe you might want to wait, uh, and maybe just not knowing is, 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 is better. But there, there's something that, that, that we can learn from that maybe. Um, there is uh, this phrase that we want to rally behind. Uh, you see it this morning, realign our lives. Uh, and we've got a couple of, of visuals there. And what we, what we mean by realign our lives is what we believe is what the disciples did. There was this all-in moment for disciples. When Jesus passed by them, you probably know some of the examples where he would say this, follow me. He says this, take up your cross, deny yourself, and follow me. To follow me. Now, what did that mean? That means leaving the, everything behind. The, 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 the disciples, remember the parts where they dropped their nets? They left their old way of life behind, and they began to follow Jesus. They became students of Jesus. Talmud is what they would call them. And essentially, what they would be doing is this. Whatever Jesus would do, they would do. Whatever Jesus believed, they would believe. Whatever the way he acted, they would seek to become like their rabbi to be a Christ follower, to be a, a follower of the rabbi. And what we believe is this, is that if we realign, realign our lives to the, the way of Jesus, that he is going to transform us to being more like him. Transform us instead of having characteristics like hatred or lying or anger or fear or lust. He will transform us to be more like him in words like love and forgiveness and patience and goodness and faithfulness and kindness. He changes us from being slaves to sin to being oaks of righteousness. Remember that phrase last week, you are an oak. That's what Jesus sees and wants for you, to be an oak of righteousness that he's calling us to be. And that is what we think that God has called us to be his Christ followers, to be his Christians, that we would be passionate about becoming like Christ. Wouldn't it be great if someone said that about you? Man, that guy's just, he's just passionate about, about being like Jesus. In fact, that's what C.S. Lewis said. That's our whole job as a church. The church exists for nothing else but to draw men into Christ, to make them into little Christs. Little Christs. That's our purpose. That's what we're called to be. Now, some of you are hearing this and you're going, all right, 
I get it. But you know what? I've kind of just tried that, and it just doesn't work. I can't change. And there are some things that I think some people have kind of, maybe you've settled. And what I mean by settled is you've kind of developed your own form of what a Christian is and said, well, that's what I'm living up to, my definition of what a Christian is, not, not, not what Christ's definition is. I know others, and I, and I kind of, and I've used this phrase before, certainly have used this phrase before. It's a simple one. Maybe you've heard it before. Don't judge me. And so we become don't judge me Christians, where we say, you know what, I, I know that there's some things in my life that don't look like Jesus. And I just, my response to that, when, when the Spirit maybe points it out to me, or when someone else points it out to me, don't judge me. Your sin is worse than my sin. I mean, look at that person. They are far worse than I am. But I don't know if that's what Christ has called us to be. Or, 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 or maybe you fall into that category of, man, I, I just can't. I've tried to change to become like Jesus. I've tried my best to change, and it doesn't work. I mean, if, if we were being honest, maybe we just would say that, say, it doesn't work. I tried. I tried. I tried. And it just doesn't work. Have you ever read, have you ever read a book before? And when you read the book, there was something that was said or illustrated or a story that you just immediately clicked with. And you were like, that is exactly what I, I have wanted to say that so many times. I wanted to say it exactly like that. That's what I believe. I read a book. And when, it, when a phrase came up and when a, this chapter came up, it just immediately connected with me. And we are going to do an entire series on this book starting September 11th because I believe this is going to be a series for us that is going to transform our lives. It's a book called The Good and Beautiful God, and it's a spiritual formation book. It's all about becoming a better disciple of Jesus. And, and what he talks about in, in this book is, is transformation and how God wants to change us. And there's a false narrative that's out there. The false narrative is that I can change through my willpower. Through my willpower, I can do it. But that is what the author would say is a false narrative. There was a guy, uh, and this is in the first chapter. When you get the book, you'll, you'll see this. It's a guy named Craig. And Craig uh, worked for uh, the, a zoo as a zoo architect. And he would travel around the world with this spe specific job. And he was in Germany on his way back to the United States trying to get back home. And I don't know if you've ever had a long flight like that before. You just eventually, you're tired, you're exhausted. He lands in Atlanta. And in Atlanta, they tell them it's going to be a delay before you can get on the next plane. It's going to be a couple of hours. Then it became another couple of hours. Then it became another couple of hours and another couple of hours. And at the end of the day, of a, a full day of waiting to get on another plane, they finally make the announcement, we are sorry, but you're not going to be able to get on a plane today. You're going to have to stay overnight. We'll, we'll book a new flight in the morning. So what happens then? If you've ever been to the airport, you know exactly what happens. People, very angry people, begin to line up. Have you ever been in that scene before? I have been in that scene. You're like, I cannot believe they did this to me. How did I not get this right? How in the world are you a company that survives in the middle of this when you're this kind of delays, customer service, they're, and you're calling people, please change this, get another flight. And now that line of angry people has formed behind the desk. That lady, that poor lady that has to field every single one of these flight changes. Have you been there before? Please shake your head. If you, I have been there before. And you're just, and every person in that line 
behind, in front of Craig, just chews this woman out. Gives her the business. How in the world? Blankety blank, blank, blank. Craig gets to the front of the line, and the first thing that he says is, ma'am, I'm not going to be mean to you. I'm not going to be mean to you. In fact, uh, whatever I can do to help. And immediately her countenance changes. And, and they have a pleasant conversation. And she, he gets booked on his flight. And he, he begins to walk toward the hotel room with his friend. And his friend turns to him and says, Craig, what is up with you? I have never seen this before in you before. I have known you for a long time, and I, I know Craig, and Craig, the Craig that I know would have flipped out on that lady, and maybe even flipped her off. Uh, you would have gone off on that woman and in anger and rage. What's different about you? You know what was different with Craig? God has been transforming him from the inside, been using practices and habits and things in his life to transform him, and that's what we believe God can do when we realign our lives to his pattern and in his way. There's this, uh, there is a, uh, a diagram that I want to show you. And you'll be probably seeing this a couple of times uh, in the next few uh, weeks. Uh, how are we transformed? And here is the, what do I do with this? What do I take home from this whole talk and this thing? There's, there's this triangle of transformation, we can call it, is this. The first thing is this. To, to really be transformed into being like Christ we have to embrace the stories, the narratives of who Jesus is. We are a story people. We have heard stories all our life. We love stories. You probably would admit that you forget 95% of the things that I say on Sunday, maybe 99% of the things. But there's sometimes there is like one story you're like, oh, I remember that story that he told. But I don't remember what else he said. I don't remember the passage. But I remember stories. Jesus taught in stories. And what he would say things like this. The kingdom of God is like, and then he would tell a story. He'd paint a picture of what it was like to be a part of this kingdom. And what God is calling us to do is embrace the stories of who Jesus is and what he wants us to be in this world so that we can transform the way that we think. You know this verse probably. It's Romans 12, uh, verse 2. And this, honestly, if you're a note taker, this would be a great, even if you're not, this is the best. Grab a pencil or a pen in front of you. The next about five minutes, I'm going to give you these three things, and I think it'll, it'll be fantastic if you're really interested in being transformed to be like Christ. Romans 12, uh, 2 uh, says it this way. Don't copy the behavior and the customs of this world, but let God transform you into a new person. How? By changing your mind. By changing your mind. He's going to change your mind. And how does he do that? He does that through narrative, through story, through his word, through images and pictures. Since then you have been raised to Christ, this is Colossians 1, 1 through 3. Set your hearts on the things above when Christ is, is seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things above, not on earthly things, for you died and your life now is hidden with Christ. So embracing this kingdom, these kingdom pictures that Jesus puts out there. And he says this, this is... This is the way I've called you to live. This is the good life. And what happens when you see a picture that Jesus paints, then you see your own life, and you go, those two don't match up. And that's when the Holy Spirit begins to, to convict us and to lead us through that. So embracing what Jesus says, this is the truth. This is the right way. The next part of that is these practicing soul training exercises. We've been watching them all this week. 
the Olympics. Uh, you see athletes everywhere. Did those, those people, they get there overnight? Did they just happen to show up at the Olympics and jump in a pool? Of course not. They've been training. They've been working towards something. They've been training probably most of their lives to become the athletes that they are. I think, personally, I think Paul was a, I think he was an athlete because he talks about sports all the time in, in, his, in the things that he writes. Things like these scriptures up here. All athletes are disciplined in their training. They do it to win a prize that will fade away, but we do it for an eternal prize. So I will run with purpose in every step. I'm not just shadow boxing. I discipline my body like an athlete, training it to do what it should do. So what is he saying? If you're going to be a Christ follower, you don't just take a magic pill, folks. You have to train yourself. You have to become, have spiritual disciplines and habits in your life that are going to train you as a spiritual athlete to be a Christ follower. So what are some of those things? These are not going to shock you. You need to have a, a, a time of reading God's word, that God's spirit speaks through his word, that you spend time in your day that you're, you're connecting with God and you're praying, that maybe solitude and the way that you live your life the pace of your life. These are habits that will form and shape you. The way that you spend your money, the way that you give, the habits in which you live, these are the spiritual formative actions that will shape you. And the last thing is this, participating in community. And I wish I had time to really expand on each one of these, and we'll do that in the next couple of weeks. But participating in community, there's a great verse in Hebrews that says this, Let's, let us think of ways to motivate one another to acts of love and good works, and let us not neglect our meeting together, as some people do, but encourage one another, especially now that the day of his return is drawing near. What is he saying? You've got to put people around you that are spurring you on. If, if you want to be a great athlete, who do you surround yourself with? Other great athletes. You play with people even better than you because you are trying to go to the next level and you are encouraging each other and pushing each other to go to where Christ has called us to be. If you want to not succeed, keep hanging around people that are not following Christ. Someone said this, uh, and I can't attribute it who exactly said it. In, in the next five years, in five years from now, you're gonna be the exact same person you are right now, except for three things. The things that you read, things that you consume in your heart and your mind, the people you spend time with, and the places you go. Those three things will determine who you are in five years. And those choices, folks, they're up to you. They're up to you. You determine who you're going to be. You determine if you're going to be a Christ follower, if you're going to grow in your faith. And that's, guys, that's what I want. I know, as I, think, as I look at my heart and my life, I know that there are areas where I am not like Christ. And I want more than anything to be like Him. I want His grace and His mercy to work in my life, to convict me, to encourage me, to push me. And I want us to do that together, that, that we would be a church that is so passionate of becoming like Christ. May that be said about us. But it all starts back that very first question, that invitation that he gives disciples, not people that go to church, not people that are, that's their status on Facebook, 
but people that want to be all in for Christ. People that have, like William Borden, no reserves. I'm holding nothing back. No retreats. I'm not going back to that life I used to live. And no regrets. I'm all in for Jesus Christ. And if that is you, I hope that you respond today. There have been chips on your, your chair, and you probably think, man, what in the world is he doing today in church? Very simply, this is a metaphor for everything in your life. This is a visual picture of everything. Your heart, your mind, your body, your words, your family your habits, your time, your talent, your treasure, your kids, your family, your future. Everything that means, everything that's anything to you. Are you willing to say, Jesus, I follow you. I want to follow you. Make me more like you. I know that I'm not like you. But I want to be, I want to be. So, Garen is uh, going to lead us in a song. I'm going to ask the band to come on up. I'm going to pray for us. We're going to sing. If God has spoken to you, and you, if you today just by an act of worship want to say, Jesus, I am all in. I'm holding nothing back. Would you come and take this chip, your chip, put it on one of these altars. And as you do, maybe you want to pr- sing the song that we are going to sing Take my life, Lord. Take my life and let it be an offering to you. Jesus, God, not a person in this room is worthy to take your name by the actions of our life. God, every one of us is a sinner and we are in need of your grace. But God, we don't want to stay in our sin. But we want to chase after, we want to follow you, God. Lord, I pray that you would take our hearts Take our our minds, you would mold them and shape them, Lord. As individuals, as a church, God, give us the the passion of William Borden. Lord, give us the words that that D.L. Moody said, that, Lord, I want to be the man that is fully consecrated to you. I want to be somebody who will pray that prayer. I want to be a woman that's fully consecrated to you, that everything I have is yours. Jesus, I pray for the person this morning that's been living a half Christian life. Lord, I pray that they would go all in in these moments, Lord. Let it be, Jesus. I pray all these things in your name. Amen. Would you stand with us and respond as the Lord would lead you this morning?